moving into our uh, series, looking at maturity, and um, just keeping in mind that these two things, maturity and unity, as we come to the end, they are connected. And so you really can't have unity without growing spiritual maturity. And as spiritual maturity grows, so will unity. And unity then gives a context for greater spiritual maturity. And so there is this cyclical work, this synergistic work between maturity and unity. And so while this text this morning, 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11, could be used uh, to talk about unity, and we actually will talk a little bit about unity, I think Peter... Again, as he defined our identity, he is moving us into a proper understanding of our gifting. And so last week, I just gave this definition of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is a spirit-empowered eagerness and ability to do life with God and others in a way that glorifies, edifies, and testifies. It's this spirit-empowered eagerness and ability to do life with God And life with others in a way that glorifies, edifies, and testifies. Then I follow that up with this statement that spiritual maturity flows out of an understanding of three things. Identity, gifting, and calling. And it can be assessed by looking at fruitfulness. And so last week we just looked at our identity as as Peter unpacks it for uh, the people he's writing to and for us today. Uh, Our identity can be found in so many passages in the scriptures. Jesus speaks to our identity at the Sermon on the Mount. He uh, gives us a sense of our identity in all of the ways he interacts with his disciples and with children and with sinners and with sick and with lame people. Paul picks up on those themes, and Romans gives us great pictures of our identity. Ephesians gives us great pictures of our identity. Colossians gives us great pictures of our identity. And then Peter goes, hey, I I want a piece of that too. So he talks about our identity, and we looked at that last week from chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Well, this morning we're going to look at gifting, and, and, and gifting sometimes gets marginalized as just kind of the things we do, but, uh, but I would just contend with you that gifting really is what makes the body work. Like, uh, we're, we're not just brought here with our personalities and with who we've, you know, come off the street as and we're put together in this group of people called the people of God. No, God has done something unique in each one of us by giving us gifts of his spirit that complement each other in such a way that the body actually works. It functions well. And so here's my big idea this morning. When the body of Christ is functioning well, God is glorified. When the body of Christ is functioning well, when we are understanding and applying what the Spirit's done in us in the context of this gathering of people, and we're functioning well, we're living out of our giftedness well, God is glorified. I could add that the body is built up, but that's a natural outflowing of the body functioning well. So when the body of Christ is functioning well, God is glorified. So let's uh, read our text this morning. It's just a, a few short verses, and then we'll just unpack them together. Peter says this, starting in verse 7, chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Oftentimes we like to kind of disconnect those things and see them as, as individual aspects of the Christian life. That, that Peter is indeed summarizing a section of his letter and he's just bringing a number of things to bear. But I, I think they're connected far more than we often look at them as connected. And so here's the outline this morning from these few verses. Uh, we're looking at spiritual maturity, and we see motivation to pursue spiritual maturity. We see the mark of spiritual maturity. We see the context of spiritual maturity and the means of spiritual maturity, and then the fruit of spiritual maturity. So we're just going to look at these verses together, the motivation of spiritual maturity. What, what motivates you to pursue spiritual maturity? Well, well Peter says... Here's what should motivate you. The end of all things is at hand. The the end is at hand. Now, 20 years ago, September 11th, 2021, maybe even September 12th, 2001, we, we were feeling very uncertain at that time. That day, I remember I was in a recording studio. Somebody came in. I was working on a project. They said, something's going on. We searched around the studio, found a TV, built an antenna, and sat there watching what unfolded. And then all the questions, what what next? What's happening? What's going on? It was a very uncertain time. And all of a sudden, people started to think about, is this the end? It's so funny how often we ask that question, isn't it? Okay, we're 20 years later today. Obviously, that was not the end. Okay, and Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Well, this was about 2,000 years ago. Obviously, the end hasn't come yet, or we'd know it. And so what is Peter intending to mean as he unpacks this? I think we're given a clue when we look at where he starts this section of the text. So last week when we were in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, I said that's the close of a section in Peter's letter. So he wraps things up in 9 and 10, and then he starts in verse 11 with beloved. It's a marker throughout the book of, okay, here's, here's a new section of thought. Now, you go, but that's right in the middle of the chapter mark. How can that be? It's okay. The chapter marks weren't inspired. Uh, They just give us a way to go, hey, I'm going to look at chapter 2, verse 11. And it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He starts this section by reminding people, hey, this isn't home. 
This isn't home for you. We're sojourners and exiles, and that calls to mind the people of Israel as they're approaching the promised land. And then throughout the New Testament, we're encouraged to live as if the end is near, as if this isn't our home, and home is right around the corner. And frankly, none of us knows what's happened, what will happen this afternoon. I had, a, had an uncle who had a, a stroke on Friday. His life is forever different, and he's still in the hospital, and recovery is not guaranteed. I had another uncle a couple of years ago that um, walked out of work, got in his car, had a heart attack. We we don't know what happens today, and so the Bible encourages us to live as if the end is at hand. Been having a, a fun conversation with Don Coons. He's kind of a Bible prophecy nut. And for the last few years that he's been around our church, he always reminds me when the Feast of Trumpets is. Because he goes, That's when Jesus is coming back. I go, Maybe. That'd be cool, right? Feast of Trumpets kind of makes sense. Well, that's been this last 10 days, the Feast of Trumpets. And, and so anytime I've seen Don Coons this week, you know, he's like, Hey, might be today. Might be. And that's how we're called to live our lives, as if the end could happen in this moment. And are you living in a way that if it did in this moment, you'd walk into God's presence going, hey, I am so glad to be home. I think the way that Peter unpacks this, he he helps us with, with a couple of ideas he says, the end is at hand. It's kind of like if you were in a long race and you're coming to the end of the finish line and you round that last corner and you can see the finish line in the distance. There's actually scientific studies about why people push harder when they can see the finish line. There's something about knowing the end is right around the corner that just helps us to kind of dig deep and find that little extra bit of energy to push through the end. Uh, Let's go back to this idea of home. You've been on a long road trip and, you know, you've been driving for 10, 12, 15 hours and, and you know you're getting close to home. You know that, okay, if I can just get around the corner. And how good it is to pull into the driveway and turn off the car and go, oh, we made it. Or maybe you've been out hiking or on a mountain climb or expedition and and, and you're tired. It's been a long couple of hours. You're getting up to the summit, but now you can see the summit. And you know it's not just, you know, another peak around the, the hill. You know, sometimes in mountain climbing you get up to one summit and you go, oh, it's still clear over there. But you know, this is it. And you can push up that last little bit to get to the summit to go, ah, I've made it. I think Peter's saying, hey, your sojourn is just about over. And that should fill you with great hope. The finish line is in view. And maybe you go, well, I can't quite see around the corner. Well, live as if it's right around the corner. Because this turmoil, this exile, it's almost over. What good news that would have been to these people who had suffered. 
he, he, he just comes out of a section of suffering as he, he says, hey, you're sojourners, and, and yet you have a testimony to bear. So know how to submit. And then he says, endure suffering. And then he comes to this portion and says, but it's almost over. Oh, how good that would have been to dig deep and go, all right, we can make it. But, but it's, it's not just that the sojourn is almost over. If we look back at uh, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, uh, Peter says, hey, and remember, people are watching. Like, your testimony's on the line in these last days as maybe it's gotten harder. Maybe you've gotten weary. Maybe things have been tough. Well, just remember, it's almost over and people are watching. So would you stand strong against passions of the flesh that wage war against you? Would you keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that if they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation? The sojourn is almost over and people are watching. And then he jumps back into that line of thought as he talks about God's judgment is coming. And that's for sinners and saints alike. And so there's several motivations tied up into this phrase, the end of all things is near. Don't give up. Press on to the end. People are watching. Remember, your testimony matters. And God's glory is at stake. And He's coming to judge the living and the dead, the saints and the sinners. So what's his encouragement? Well, be spiritually mature. Be motivated to be mature. Well, what's the marks of spiritual maturity that he gives us in these verses? He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He says, here's what spiritual maturity looks like. That first verb of the, or the verb of the first imperative, that be self-controlled, describes the ability to see things clearly for what they are, and then to act in an appropriate way. Be self-controlled. It's interesting to me that um, Paul uses this same word, this same verb in Romans 12.3 as Paul is getting ready to enter into his description of spiritual gifts. So Romans uh, 12 starts with, hey, um, you need to guard your mind. And then he says you need to be self-controlled. And in that text, he's saying, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Have an accurate assessment of who you are and how God has gifted you. Have clarity about what God's done in you. Same word here in 1 Peter. This word is used in the Gospels two different times. Same story, though, Mark 5. And Luke 8, when it's talking about the demoniac that Jesus meets in the Decapolis, and he casts out this legion of demons. And it says, when those demons left him, he became self-controlled. He became aware of who he was. He became aware of who Jesus was in that moment. He became aware of his new purpose in life. He wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus said, no, no, no. I want you to go tell of this good news. And he went, okay. That's what I'll do. He had clarity 
about who he was again. He was in control again. So Peter says, hey, in light of the end being near with that motivation, because, you know, the sojourn's just about over and people are watching and judgment is coming. Have clarity about who you are. Have clarity about what God's doing and be ready and able to respond in the moment. The verb in the second imperative, be sober-minded. It literally means the opposite of drunkenness. But here, as in other places in the New Testament, there's a sense of remaining alert so it's not just be, a, be clear about who you are and be aware of what's going on and ready to respond, but be alert. What is God doing in this moment? And then he uses this phrase for the second time in the book. For the sake of your prayers. Or we could say it the way he said it in 1 Peter 3, 7, so that your prayers won't be hindered or so that your prayers will be sharply focused, or that your prayers would have impact and power and effectiveness. He's saying be motivated that the end is near. Have clarity about what God's doing. Have a readiness to respond, an alertness to what God's doing. And your prayers will reflect just how ready you are. Your prayers will be impacted if you're self-controlled and sober-minded. Your prayer life will have effectiveness. It will have fruitfulness. There's a lot going on in the life of our church right now. We're going to have another lunch today and talk a little bit more about transition that's coming. And I just go, now, maybe more than ever in the last 15 years, it's a a time to be self-controlled and sober-minded to be praying well in light of what God is doing, to have clarity about that, to have a readiness, to have an alertness, and to pray that way. Now keep in mind that I I believe in the context. Peter is reminding these people when the body of Christ is functioning well, God is glorified. These aren't disconnected ideas. He's saying for the body to function well, we have to be motivated towards spiritual maturity. And then within us, together, there needs to be a clarity and an alertness to what God is doing. And as we give ourselves to those things through prayer, focused and effective prayer, maturity is built up in us. When the body of Christ is functioning well, God is glorified. That's the context. It's so interesting to me that whenever spiritual gifts are mentioned, they're mentioned in the context of the body of Christ or the people of God. And, And so it's a clue for us that Peter is moving into verses 10 and 11 where he talks about spiritual gifts, where he talks about these gifts of grace that God gives, and we're supposed to see those in light of the body. So he's saying, hey, I'm building an argument here that when the body of Christ is functioning well, God is glorified. So the body, we have to give attention to the body. This is the context where spiritual maturity can happen. 
And so he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The context of the body of Christ is protected by love. Let me see if I can illustrate what I think Peter means for us. There's some conversation about what he means by cover a multitude of sins. It's clear that it's not saving grace, that it's not our love that saves us from our sins. And, and nor do I think it's, it's love that kind of excuses our sins or, or helps us to put up with one another, um, though it's kind of related to that. If, if this is the body of Christ, that flame represents strife or difficulty or trouble among us. And you know how easy that comes up because we're all human, right? It's about like, okay, it's, it's about that easy where we can say something that offends someone and all of a sudden there's a little flame in our body and what love does is it says, you know what, we're just going to cover that up. And, and, and before that becomes a raging fire, before that becomes destructive, we're just going to snuff it out. We're just going to let that go out. Love covers a multitude of sins. That means over and over and over. As we do and say dumb things, as there are misunderstandings among us, which there will be, love quickly covers that so it snuffs out that fire so that fire has no chance of causing destruction. Now, thankfully, the Bible gives us insight to how do we recover from a house fire. So there are ways to do that, but, but love is intended to stop that short. To say we're not going to let that fire grow among us. We're going to snuff that out. Love is the protection of the body of Christ. Then he follows that up very quickly with show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So if love is this protective covering for the body of Christ that snuffs out these things that Satan just loves to stir up in us. You know, he's shooting flaming arrows at us all the time and love goes, nope, we're going to cover that up. If love is protection, then hospitality is empowerment. Hospitality is the context where spiritual life and body connectedness can happen. Now, in the New Testament, hospitality is a virtue, and, and there's, there's several reasons that I think we can see in the New Testament for that. The New Testament was built on house churches. All right, so if you didn't have hospitality, if you weren't willing to welcome people into your home, they didn't go to church. Okay, it's a little different today, right? We go, yeah, people can come into the building, but I don't know about them coming into my house. Okay, but that context of the house church necessitated hospitality. Sanctuary or protection given to those who needed it, given the social pressure of conversion. Okay, this is still true in some parts of the world. It's not true in America. But when people in other parts of the world come to Christ, they are cut off. 
You know, their lives are in danger. And if other fellow believers aren't hospitable, if they don't go, yes, you can come into my house and we're going to give you sanctuary from whatever else is coming at you, then bad things happen. Hospitality often came with a meal. It's sharing these meals, which had significance of extending familial ties to fellow believers. Exercising hospitality was this opportunity to say, hey, we're brothers and sisters. We're family, so let's gather around the table and let's enjoy some good food together. Or, as we see in the example of Paul and others, but tent makers, those who were working from town to town to spread the gospel. Like, they they didn't have a home. They were hoping that when they got to the next town, some Christian, some fellow believer, somebody would go, hey, why don't you come stay at my house? Now, in our modern day, we may not see the same importance, but let me try to translate some of these to our modern context. I think spiritual maturity and understanding and application of our giftedness happens through hospitality. So much more than it happens in a moment like this. I have no idea if you're exercising your spiritual gift. Actually, I do. You're probably not exercising your spiritual gift right now. Okay, some of you are asleep. Others of you are like, oh, can we just get to lunch? Others of you are like, I'm listening and I'm, I'm thankful for this, but man, I, I'm not exercising my spiritual gift. It's when we actually start to do life together that we start to experience a context where we can each exercise our spiritual giftedness. Where we're actually going to find out that there's other teachers in our church. You know where that's going to happen? Is when you're around a table sharing a meal with some people that maybe you haven't known very well and you start to have a conversation about biblical things and all of a sudden this person begins to unpack the word of God like you're like, whoa! Okay, now we're starting to exercise spiritual gifts. And then maybe somebody has this idea of, you know, our little group, we could, we could go and do something. Would you guys be interested in, like, serving somewhere outside of our church? Maybe we go to feed my starving children. Maybe we go and do this thing. You know, I have a neighbor who needs some help. Could we do that together? And, and they all of a sudden start leading this project. And, and then you go, whoa, we're starting to see spiritual giftedness in action. Bonnie Godin and I, sorry to call you out here, Bonnie, we're having this little conversation about the importance of preaching. And I think preaching is of the utmost importance. Hear me say that, Bonnie. Preaching is of the utmost importance. But preaching alone will not make spiritually mature believers. We actually, together, have to take the word. We have to take this sermon or these passages or something else and we have to get around a table together and go, what does that mean for you? And how can I help you live that out? That's in the context of hospitality. We actually have to open our homes and open our lives to one another for that to happen. Otherwise, we come in on Sunday morning. And we sit here, and I hope, 
I hope that I open up the word of God in some way that you take something out of here. But you can come in and get something and take it out and never engage your spiritual gift. And until you do, you will not be as mature as Christ wants you to be. Now, now here's the crucial thing. Your maturity affects all of our maturity. My maturity affects all of our maturity because we're knit together in this body. And if there's a weak part of the body, the whole body is weak. So this is so important. Because the end is near. And people are watching. And judgment is coming. And we're going to be held responsible for what did we do here from this church together for the glory of God. So Peter says, keep on loving because that squelches these fires that pop up. And they're going to pop up. That's just life with humans. And then welcome each other into your lives. So that spiritual maturity can really take root and grow in us. Man, hospitality gives us that sense of family. We're trying to do it downstairs when we have lunch together. And and that's just a small piece. It's so much different to have people in your home. It's so much different to go out to dinner with somebody than to sit around a table here. And we're trying. That's our hope. And then I would just add this final note. I think hospitality gives an incredible context for witness. Invite unbelievers into that context. Can you imagine what your neighbors would think if you've built relationship with them to the point where you can say, we're having some friends over for dinner. Would you like to come? And they go, sure, that would be great. And they walk in, and it's not a bait and switch. You're just having spiritual conversations. And it, it has, it's obvious that what you're talking about, the things that you believe are actually impacting the way that you live. And these people who don't know Jesus are seeing the fruit of Jesus' work in lives right in front of them. It's powerful, powerful witness. And we don't have to beat people over the head. We just have to be willing to engage in life with one another in spiritual ways and then invite some other people into that. And I'll just say, your house doesn't have to be clean. I know. You're like, oh boy, yeah, it does. You have no idea. Yeah, I do. I have five kids. You know, there's been some parts in the recent past where we've had nine people living in our house, okay? We have more pairs of shoes than uh, DSW. So there have been times, thankfully, when Mark and Kathy Barnes knock on our door, bam, 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 and we're like, who would be coming over right now? And I open the door and there's Mark and Kathy, hey, we just brought some ice cream, can we come in? Okay, I I have a choice in that moment. I'm sorry, no. (laughs) Or 
Yeah, come. Let's be hospitable to one another. And our house is a disaster because it's Sunday afternoon. It's been a long week. So, hey, we'll clear off a spot on the couch. We were watching this thing. We can have some conversation or watch this thing. And thanks for the ice cream. It's pretty tasty. It's challenging, but this is the context where spiritual maturity happens because it's the context where we can gain clarity about what God is doing in each one of us and that we can help one another be alert to what God is trying to accomplish. If you don't know your spiritual gift, my encouragement to you is start hanging out with people in this church outside of Sunday. Okay, so, so this would be an easy thing to do. I invited myself over to uh, a family's house yesterday. Just sh- well, I didn't show up. We had it planned, but I invited myself. I want to come over to your house. I want to meet your kids. I want to be in your, in your living room. Can we share a meal? And um, it was a little awkward, and they all said, that's a little awkward. You're inviting yourself over, but it went okay. And there was more clarity and more alertness. So here's the easy ask. Uh, Hello, yes, this is so-and-so from church. I know we don't really know each other because we only see each other on Sunday morning and we probably haven't had too many conversations. But I'd like to come over to your house and talk about spiritual things. Would that be okay? And I'm not crazy. I challenge you, I encourage you, would you do that this week, this month? Just... Like, we're working on a new directory. It's out there. You can check it off. You can see, is my information right? Great. And as you check your information, look at the person right below you. Go, I don't know them. Here's their phone number. And write it down. And then call them up this week and say, hey, I'm a crazy person. But it's okay. Pastor Andrew gave me permission. Would you come over to our house? Or can I come over to your house so we can have spiritual conversations? And could we pray together that we would all know our spiritual giftedness so that we can grow up as a body together? And just know there's going to be flames that pop up. I didn't like how they chewed their food. I didn't like what they wore. I didn't like how they looked at our shoe pile. That's why I think Peter says, hey, uh, exercise hospitality without grumbling. Now, why does he have to add that phrase, huh? But if we're honest, and if I can be honest, there have been moments where we have people in our home, and I'm wishing they were at their home. Okay, that, that's an attitude of grumbling. I'm, I'm just resentful that you're still here at my house. It's 1045, please. Go home. I think it's also those contexts. We're going to be in each other's lives. And those are the contexts where this is going to happen. Flames are going to push. And in that moment, I just pray that these words would ring in your ears and you'd go, hospitality without grumbling. Love covers a multitude of sin because spiritual maturity is at stake. And if spiritual maturity is at stake, our unity is at stake. And if unity is at stake, the glory of God is at stake. So this matters. What's the means of spiritual maturity? Okay, what, what, what is the means of getting stronger no matter what else you do? You have to exercise. 
okay? If you just sit on the couch all the time, you will not get stronger. I hate that reality, okay? I hate that it takes months and months and months and months to feel like, wow, I can run five miles. That's amazing. But it took nine months, And then you hurt your back and you're out for like three months and then you go try to run again? I hate it. But that's the reality. I've been sitting around because my back's been hurt and now I go try to run again? And I'm not running five miles, I'll tell you that. So if we are not exercising what God has done in us, we will not grow strong. It's the bottom line for Peter. Hey, there's motivation and there's marks. Here's what you're shooting for. Here's the context by which, uh, in which you do this. We need to protect it. We need to empower it. But the bottom line is you've got to exercise your giftedness. And guess what? It is grace to you. God's best gift to you is your spiritual giftedness. Okay, your salvation but then he fills you with his spirit and he gifts you to be part of the body. And if you exercise that, you grow into spiritual maturity and the body functions better and better and better and God is glorified. So what's your spiritual gift? Well, here's a great place to start. Do you like to talk? Do you like to serve? Okay, Peter, he's using almost identical language, incredibly similar language to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, where Paul unpacks this huge list of spiritual gifts. He sets it up almost the same way, and then he just says, hey, if, um, if you like to talk, then talk as if you're speaking the words of God. And if you like to serve, then serve as if it's out of God's strength. And he boils down these big lists of spiritual gifts into two primary categories. And if you go and turn to 1 Corinthians 12 and read through the list, or if you go to Romans 12 and read through the list, or if you go to Ephesians 4 and read through the list, you're going to find out that Peter summarizes them pretty good. And so here's a great place to start. Do you like to talk or do you like to serve? Okay, if you like to talk, that's okay. Just make sure you're talking about the right stuff. Man, if talking comes easy to you, if you go, man, I don't mind sharing a devotional. I don't mind having conversations with people. I don't mind going up to strangers and telling them about Jesus. Praise the Lord. God's done something in you. So talk about the right stuff. Talk about God's stuff. And if you go, man, I just really like to serve people. I like to do things. I like to be behind the scenes. Praise the Lord. God's done something in you. So do it as if God is giving you strength to do it. From there, okay, simple question. Do you like to talk? Do you like to serve? Okay, that that begins to put you into some categories. Then I just say, go to Romans 12. There's seven gifts listed there. I think they are a primary gift or a primary list of gifts that motivate us, that get us energized. And go to, go to Romans 12. And I'm going to post on the website uh, a little paper that I've used many times, say, uh, entitled Discovering Your Spiritual Gift, Your Motivational Gift. 
Okay, go to Romans 12 before you read the paper, because it's not there yet. I don't want you to read it first. I want you to read Romans 12 first and pray. God, you've done something in me. That's what Peter says. Here's what he says. As each has received a gift. Each one of you has a gift. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have a gift. And it's a gift of grace. It is God's goodness to you. It's a really good gift, but it's not just for you. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. Steward your gift. That's the means. Exercise your gift. That's the means. That's how we get stronger. So if you've been reading your Bible for years and years and years and you go, I don't think I've matured much. I just go, have you exercised your spiritual gift along the way? And so often I find people go, I don't know what my gift is. No wonder we're spiritually immature. Because the key to spiritual maturity is understanding our identity in Christ and our gifting by the Spirit and then using that in the context of the body that builds up the body and glorifies God because when the body of Christ is functioning well, God is glorified. And that is the fruit. God gets the glory. And so Peter wraps up this way. He says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Okay. God was glorified through Jesus Christ in the way that Jesus lived his life on earth. Okay, we know that because he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm getting glory because Jesus is living his life well. God was glorified through Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross and atoned for our sins, for my sins and for your sins. And as he offers that free gift of grace that through faith in him, believing that that's what he did for you, that you're a sinner and that Jesus died in your place for your sins, that brings glory to God. God was glorified when Jesus rose again from the dead and and secured new life for all of us. God was glorified when Jesus ascended back into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. But see, then we're made the body of Christ. We have to get that head-body picture back in our minds from submission. We are the body of Christ. We've been united together as the body of Christ. And as Christ continues to work in the world through his body, God is glorified. When the body of Christ is functioning well, God gets the glory. And this idea is so energizing to Peter. This only happens a few times in the New Testament where the writer of a letter gets so excited that they just can't help themselves. Paul in uh, Romans 11, as he's closing out this just incredibly heady section of theology, he's just so taken with that theology that he just has to proclaim praise to the Lord. Peter does the same thing here. He sees this picture. Man, the end of all things is coming near. 
Okay, I'm excited about that because I know that means Jesus is coming and so I want to have clarity and alertness to all that God's doing because he's doing things through his body. So I want to have love cover sin. I want to engage hospitality so the body is built up and encouraged so that we have a context for us all to use our spiritual gift because that's the key of maturity. And man, when that happens, I just praise the Lord. That's what he does here. And I just hope that we get just a little bit of that kind of passion. That we go, man, it is, it is such our heart's desire to see God glorified in our lives that we'll do whatever it takes to become spiritually mature. We'll open our messy home and say, people, come on over because we need to have spiritual conversations and I need you to pray for me and I'm going to pray for you that we would understand that we would have clarity about what God's done in us. That we'd help each other to be alert because God's on the move right now. And in that, that we'd grow up and function well. And then, wow! Do we get excited about God getting glory anymore? Peter can't contain himself, so he just does a doxology. To him, there's some scholarly debate about whether he's talking about Jesus or God. I don't think it matters. To him, to the triune God. To the triune God. Who loves us and has brought us into his plan. Be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So can we pursue spiritual maturity together? A spirit-empowered eagerness and ability to do life with God and others in a way that glorifies, edifies, and testifies. Let's pray. Father,